Sup, freaks, it's your boy Marty Bent here to introduce this episode of Tales from the Crypt. I have the immense pleasure of sitting down with Andy Edstrom, author of Why Buy Bitcoin. Uh, incredible conversation, getting to know Andy a little bit more, talking about his book, a recent presentation he gave at the Value of Bitcoin conference, and uh, Bitcoin from uh, an institutional investor's perspective. I think you guys are really going to like this one. This episode is brought to you by our good friends at the Cash you freaks should already know all about them, but if you don't know about them, let me tell you a little bit about them. They're helping you stack sats. They're helping you send sats. They're helping you receive sats. They're helping you DCA into sats, all right? We're not buying fractions of Bitcoins anymore. We're buying whole sats. Cash App makes that extremely easy. If you want to set it and forget it, you can do that daily, weekly, bi-weekly buys on the app. You can set it up as much as you want or up to the limits. Excuse me. Um... So they got that. Sats are the standard. I've made sats the standard again. So it feels more empowering buying whole sats instead of fractions of bitcoins. On top of uh, the sat stacking, sending, receiving, and selling, if you so please, uh, they have Cash App Investing, which allows you to buy slivers of stonks. I know a lot of you freaks don't want to buy stonks. The stonk market's been a little bit crazy lately. It's been taken over by people like Davy Day Trader. It's madness out there. The suits are losing. The inmates are taking over the asylum. And if you want to get take apart and just buy some slivers of stonks, Cash App's letting you do that. You don't have to, but it is available. You can if your favorite stonks a little too expensive out of your price range, you can buy as little as one dollar. Because it's directly connected to your bank account. There's no four to five day waiting periods. On top of that, it may even be your bank account. Cash App's becoming like a new wave bank. They've got account number and routing numbers. You can direct deposit your paycheck into the Cash App. Cut the banks out. You can use Cash App as your bank now. Uh, they've also got their boost program where you save at partner merchants when you get your boost card, your personalized boost card. The app is just uh, expanding. I saw they just bought a company in Spain the other day. Maybe they'll be exp- expanding internationally from here. I don't know. Not part of the ad read. Didn't didn't talk to those freaks over at the Cash App about this, so don't take my word for it. If you do, if you do, when you do download the Cash App, make sure you use the code StackingSats. That's one word: S T A C K I N G S A T S. You're gonna get ten dollars, and ten dollars gonna go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Use the code StackingSats. Download the Cash App and enjoy this rip with Andy Edstrom. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a lovely Monday afternoon. The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, the weather's heating up, uh, but we're here to talk about Bitcoin. Very excited for this conversation. Uh, long time coming. We've been uh, conversing back and forth for a while now. Uh, I'm going to raise my hand here. Uh, the the uh, lagging has been on my end. 
to, to get this conversation in the books, but I'm happy that we're finally getting done. I'm sitting down with author of Why Buy Bitcoin, Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. I'd like to introduce you freaks to Andy Edstrom. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Marty, it's a real pleasure to be on. I'm super psyched to be here and uh, no worries about chasing you down. We've, we've made this happen and uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. So we met in person last year at Bitcoin 2019, at a little uh, picnic bench with Bitcoin Tina. And you had a draft of uh, your book out. I'd read about half of it, I believe, at that point. Um, uh have since finished it, at least that draft. I have not gotten the hard copy yet, um, but very interested to walk through why you wrote the book, what's in the book. Uh, but first, before we get into that, I think it's important to understand what you were doing before the book uh, and your your sort of career path that led you to Bitcoin and and writing this particular book. Yeah, man, happy to happy to tell my story. And before we start, I'll just say that uh, you're in the acknowledgments of the book. Um, I appreciated, you know, the, the positive feedback you gave me. It was it was a pick me up, uh, you know, at the time because uh, because uh, it's easy to start a book, it's harder to finish it. But it was uh, it was awesome to have some uh, some good feedback uh, from you at the time. And honestly, your your pod and the bent, of course, you know, were significant factors in me making my my hero's journey. Uh, from Bitcoin through all the alts and uh, you know the desert of uh, of shit coins and back to Bitcoin. So, but yeah, so so my story. Um, I did work for Goldman basically. I, so I, I graduated college in two thousand three, and I worked for Goldman from two thousand four to two thousand six. And I've spent you know seventeen years basically in the in the regular way finance and investment business. And I did my undergrad in economics and. It didn't prepare me, of course, at all for Bitcoin, right? I was a Keynesian, like every, taught, taught Keynesian economics, inculcated uh, just like everyone else. And I had no exposure to the Austrian economics other than I'd probably heard of Hayek, you know, once or twice, but never studied anything. And so I managed to basically, you know, make my way well into a career in finance without ever truly understanding what is money, which is sort of shocking um, but it's helped me to appreciate why so many on my side of the fence in legacy finance have struggled with Bitcoin. And it's one of the key reasons I wrote the book. But my career in a nutshell, so yeah, investment banking, Goldman Sachs, uh, private equity, worked for a fund that spun out of the Carlyle Group, which is a giant private equity complex. Then I worked for a hedge fund here in LA called Tenenbaum Capital, about $5 billion of assets. And I was an associate when I joined and a principal when I left. And I left to join my family business, which is actually my dad and his co-founding partners started a wealth management business, independent registered investment advisor, fiduciary business uh, over 30 years ago now. So I've been there for eight years. And uh, I'm one of those third exposure guys when it comes to Bitcoin. Okay. So I read about it while I was on vacation with my wife and my son, I was in Eastern Europe, we were traveling and there was an article in The Economist about Bitcoin. And I read it and I didn't understand it at all and I completely forgot about it. Second exposure was an article, I can't remember if it was Economist for Wall Street Journal and it was on the Dow fork, the Ether hard fork. And 20, I guess that was probably mid late 2016, maybe July, 2016. And again, totally over my head, missed it. And then 
first quarter to second quarter in 2017, I started, I don't know, I saw an article somewhere, somebody that I knew uh, pinged me on it. It might've been actually Arun Rao, real smart tech guy that I, that I had known for a while. And, um, you know, basically said, Hey, you got to look at this. And that's when I started to fall down the rabbit hole, do the research. I, you know, it was nights and weekends, wasn't getting any sleep, you know, the usual, this is, this is too fascinating to put down. And I ended up publishing a research report, you know, in, in sort of classic investment management uh, slash Wall Street style on crypto. And it was, you know, the title was basically cryptocurrencies, you know, the world's most underowned asset class. And so that was mid, I guess it was mid to, it was probably September 2017. And uh, so, of course, you know, went through the bubble, went through the crash, and I was still convinced of the thesis, but eventually I continued to do the work and I listened to more Marty Bent <laughs> and read more Marty Bent. And I finally figured out that Bitcoin was the thing. And we got to beginning of 2019, right? We had the, we had the, the hard fork and the crash at the end of 2018. So Bitcoin was like 3K in January 2019. And finally I realized, okay, this is ridiculous. Like this is probably the buying opportunity of a lifetime. And I gotta get my clients exposure but if I'm going to get them exposure, then I'm going to have to explain it to them. And it's not a one or two conversation, you know, kind of topic. So I'm going to have to write it down. So I might as well write it in a full book and put it out there. So I did that. I started writing in January uh, when the price was around 3K. And it was published in September. Um, the draft you read was a little rough. I mean, most of the meat was there, but I, but I reworked it basically to make it much more a little less technical and more readable, sort of more accessible to, um, to, to the average reader, average intelligent reader, let's say. And um, so that was kind of the, the story about, uh, yeah, about how the book came to be. Well, thank you for writing the book. I mean, it, 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 the drafts that I read, I'm sorry I've not got my hands on a hard copy yet to, to read the final version. That is on my list of things to do. But the book list gets longer in Bitcoin every, every year. Um, <laughs> it does. It's hard to keep up. <laughs> and um, no, a, a, I mean, a draft I read, again, like you said, you, you uh, not dumbed it down, but made it a little bit more clear and less technical. Uh, I thought it was very, very readable and, and digestible for uh, an institutional investor type audience. So what has the reception uh, from, from your clients been to the book and how how how's it been sort of educating them about bitcoin and um uh, investing yeah. in it from their perspective yeah look it's been definitely you know overwhelmingly positive but not without exception i mean there i still have a couple clients who are either wary they're either wary of it or you know i guess they don't want it to succeed um, because of what the implications, you know, might be for the existing system, I think, is there, you know, is there, is there a driver there? But yeah, overall, a lot of good feedback. The main thing, you know, they've said is it's, it's well-written and understandable, which I'm thankful for that they basically could, uh, hopefully wrap their heads around it. Um, so yeah, it, it's, you know, the, where we were, I think before the book, at least with my clients was the usual, uh, tropes in the mainstream media you know, sensationalism, it's criminal money, it's for money laundering, you know, whatnot. And uh, so we've come a long way since there, but 
it is, you know, it is an uphill, uh, an uphill battle, but I have, I have gotten overwhelmingly positive, um, you know, uh, results and feedback. And that was, you know, the goal that I tell people, you know, cause I've been, you know, uh, I've been, I spoke at the value of Bitcoin conference, um, last week or the week before, and, and the message I've been bringing to sort of legacy finance people is look, if you've got someone that you want to help understand this, or if you haven't done the work yourself, legacy finance person to understand this, you know, here's a, here's a tool that's, uh, that's hopefully readable, but also doesn't sacrifice, uh, you know, m too much in, in terms of detail. I didn't want it to be sort of short and perfunctory, but I also didn't want it to be 300 pages. So it's somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Somebody is making his way through an 800 page book right now. I appreciate you, uh, keeping it somewhere in the middle. Is it Mises? Uh, yeah. I'm <laughs> finally making my way through human action. Yeah. Was, yeah, human, uh, human action is a, is a slog. Um, I did, I did it on audio and the audio that I had is not very high quality. I think it was, it must've been recorded, you know, 12 or 15 years ago or something. So it was doubly, uh, doubly difficult. Um, but yeah, man, it's, uh, it's, it's worth, it's worth, as you know, it's worth the, the effort and worth the work. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, I'm getting through it. I'm, uh, I'm making good strides. I, I'll wake up, take the morning shift with my son. Uh, he takes a nap like an hour and a half after he wakes up at like 8 a.m. Or, yeah, around 8 a.m. So I start reading at like 7.30 to 9. Yeah, man. Getting through it. Getting through it. It is a slog. Like, like they say, like eating a whale, right? One bite at a time. Exactly. I'm a slow reader too, so it's going to take many, many bites for me. Yeah. Um, I got into, you know, there was a short time in my life when I tried to learn, you know, speed reading basically as a technique. And I did it a little bit. And the, the conclusion I walked away with was, yeah, you can teach yourself to read something very quickly, but your retention, at least for me, you know, the retention of, of the material was, was, you know, left something to be desired. So my experience personally was there's not much, there's no free lunch in terms of speed of reading. If you read slower, it takes you a longer time, but, but hopefully you, you know, you absorb it better. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the case. I, I find myself going back and rereading lines. I'm one of those people. I was like, I need to really understand so I can keep the thread going in my mind of, of what's actually happening within the book. So Absolutely. it'll take me some time about, uh, and, almost a and, and third the mission, of the way through the mission of Bitcoin education, in my view is, you know, hit, hit people from all sides, right? Maybe you read my book, maybe read one of the other books on the market. Maybe you listen to, uh, you know, you listen to TFTC, you listen to a couple of the other pods. It takes, it takes multiple exposures, repeat exposures, you know, different lenses, different angles for this stuff to sink in. No, I was actually having a conversation over the weekend with somebody who was asking exactly that, like how, uh, writing it for, for an investor audience, like in a newsletter, like how do I get the point across to them and that Bitcoin can help in a certain, very specific situation. I was like, you're not going to do it in one newsletter. I like think it takes <laughs> yeah. many touch points. Yeah. Like, yeah. I love that question. Just, just explain Bitcoin to me in two sentences. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. what do you do with that? Right. <laughs> yeah. Number go up, Bitcoin fixes us. That's it. <laughs> the memes uh, are big. The memes are big. Your uh, your partner uh, your partner in crime, uh, Odell, is uh, is on top of that too. You guys are you guys are a, are a meme machine. So is my uh, my newly affiliated firm, Swam Bitcoin. That's that's key to our business uh, model. Yeah, 
getting the uh, getting the message condensed into a very small and reproducible um, sort of meme format is is important. It does work. It does does do uh, does go a long way too. And, and that's the one thing with Matt. I think Matt has uh, produced more meme material uh, than I in this duo, and that's. I think what you'll come to realize is like naturally like he doesn't go out there and be like, Oh, I'm going to make a meme. It's just like, he just says something and it's just like picks up steam in the background. That's when it becomes a meme. Right. It's, uh, That's right. It's sort of organically naturally replicated by people who just, uh, uh, really, uh, connect with it. Yeah, man, the memes and the narratives are, are so crucial. Um, you know, one of the guys who's woken me up to this is, is Ben Hunt, who you, I know you've had on the pod maybe more than once. Um, I've learned a ton from him. Um, I've learned a ton from him, uh, on that topic. And, um, yeah, I was, I was lucky enough to meet him. He had an event out here in LA and, uh, yeah, he's got a very interesting perspective on, on basically narrative development. And to my mind, yeah, the meme, the meme component is, is crucial to that. Yeah. Right. It just makes all this, uh, all the stuff easy to to digest and then share. It's like, all right, that's the me like Bitcoin fixes this. It's like, all right, it's just a basis from which people can can uh, take their research. Like, if Bitcoin does fix this, how does it do that? And why does it fix this particularly? Yeah. Um, and you sort of dive into the nitty gritty stuff. Yeah. And we got to get we got to we got to convince uh, we got to convince Ben uh, to come over into the into the light. <laughs> he, st- he still thinks we're all going to get shot. We'll see. Uh, I, I unfortunately, I think Ben particularly will be one of uh, the late adopters who's sort of forced to by the will of the market. Um, I think he I will hope, too. I think I he's gonna. He's gonna. I'm gonna. He's, I don't know. He he had, he was kind enough to you know invite me to talk about Bitcoin, and I think his planned conference in in October. He'll probably disinvite me after saying this, but but I was reading his latest letter, and I almost fell off my chair laughing uh, uh, after the first paragraph because. You know, he describes himself basically as, a, as an upper middle class white guy. And, um, you know, if Ben Hunt is upper middle class, then uh, that I'm starving on, on the street. Um, I think, you know, I think one of the key reasons that Ben is not taking the personal risk on Bitcoin, right, is he's got too much to lose. I mean, if you've made, you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions in the legacy financial system, man, it's, uh, it's a lot tougher to come out pro Bitcoin uh, when you've got you know two two feet firmly planted in a system that's made you rich, right? And uh, incentives and uh, I don't want to say complacency. I don't think he, Ben. Eh, maybe Ben is a little complacent. Uh, disclaimer: I love Ben and I love our conversations. Yeah, I know me too. Many of the many of you freaks out there who've listened to them uh, disagree strongly, and I disagree with him as well. And, and but uh, yeah, look, it's uh, look. It's I've weird... got conflicts of interest. We all do. I prefer to, you know, I try to, I try to bubble them up and uh, and make them as plain as possible. Nobody's unconflicted in this uh, in this situation, but um, yeah. yeah. That's what somebody sent a provocative tweet out over the weekend. Like, uh, like journos are some of the worst people on the planet. And I was talking about like corporate press journal journalists who. Uh, basically speak the party line and just parrot whatever the party line is at any given point in time. And somebody 
reached out to me is like, once you consider yourself a journalist, aren't you in that, in that cohort? And I was number one, no, I don't consider myself a journalist, but I can't see how people would view me as such. Um, and then number two, like I am, I wear my bias on my sleeve. Like it's set, like Marty's bent. The definition uh, that I have at the bottom is this is my inclination. This is my bent on everything that's going on. And like, this is my bias basis. What I think is interesting in the last 24 hours, like me. <laughs> yeah. I think as you wear it on your sleeve. I think you put it front and center. Um, and, uh, there's still, you know, people can learn a lot from you. Um, it is, you know, man, it, it is hard to think for yourself. I mean, we do live in an age where there's more info than ever, uh, streaming at us. And it's, I guess, harder for the individual or it's more work to try to separate the wheat from the chaff, but, you know, that's just the nature of the beast. That's that's the world we're living in. Yeah, no, and I think as long as you're up front with that bias and I don't even say, you know, maybe it's a conflict of interest, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that's a lot more admirable than uh, the corporate press who pretends like they're feeding you facts and uh, is, is not uh, objective on any particular subject when they are heavily influenced by their objectivity and their facts aren't always ironclad. Um, I think that's less admirable. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. I, you know, I try to read as much history. I've actually been reading more history lately, partly because I've got an, uh, an audible subscription, which has basically some of the credits like expire. Like if you don't use them up, they, they basically go away. So I had like 10 credits that were about to expire. I was like, Oh shit, I got to buy a bunch of books. <laughs> so, so I got a bunch of, uh, I bought a bunch of books, you know, some history, some econ, some, uh, some other stuff. But um, yeah, it makes you wonder, like, I wish, I wish I could just have experienced different periods in the last century, even just in the U S to really get a true sense of how unbiased the journalism was at the time. I mean, you read about the yellow journalism, you know, period a century plus ago. And, and at that time, you know, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, I mean, the, what I read in history class, what they taught me in history class was that was like totally ridiculous, you know, biased journalism at the time. And then I guess it became less biased over time. And now we're going for a period through a period where it's more biased because the business model was changing. And it just makes you wonder, you know, how was there ever a moment when when journalism in general was was unbiased? And I think the answer is never 100 percent. It's just gradations. Yeah, no, it's what I was typing to pull up uh, a thread of tweets I sent out in January because I was reading some history, too, particularly about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I forget. I was like reading Thomas Jefferson's letters or something like that. And hey, good for you. He has two letters, three years apart. 1809 and 1812 and the first he he had this line i shall give over reading newspapers they are so false and so intemperate that they deserve tranquility without giving information (laughs) um and then three years later he sort of followed up on that he said i'd given up newspapers in exchange for tacitus thucydides uh for newton and euclid and i find myself much the happier um so sort of reading more about history and philosophy yeah. Uh, over over the the daily news of the time seems to seems to be something that uh, has a much higher return on investment and then getting caught up in the in the media cycles at any point in time like you said so this was Thomas Jefferson it's true 200 years ago it's true I'm guilty of the same I mean you know our our uh, our influencer uh, our North Star Nassim Taleb 
you know, is constantly banging on about, you know, read the classics, read the ancients, you know, uh, read, read the old guys because so much of human nature has been determined for thousands of years and uh, we'd all do well to, to remember that. No, I agree. I completely agree. And that's, that's sort of why I've been turning to like, I finally decided to read human actions. Like, all right, let's just do it. This is, this is a book that's been around for, for decades now at this point, it seems to be um, something that could stand the test of time centuries into the future and getting away from the day today, social media and mainstream media nonsense, particularly last month, um, is something that I think is actually good for mental health. Like my wife has been getting a little distraught, like following social media, everything that's going on, all the pressures to post certain things and, and posture certain ways. It really starts fucking with people's minds. Yeah, man. I mean, it's been a tough couple of months. I mean, you know, being, you know, I'm in the wealth management business, right? So I'm tasked with looking after people's investments. Uh, March was pretty hair raising. Uh, April was a little bit better. Um, you know, we've had this, amazing rally uh, back, not quite to the to the highs, well, I guess to the highs, you know, on the NASDAQ, basically the tech giants are, are back in uh, fine fettle. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it's been, I agree, I felt the stress. I've been watching the, uh, the activities with the protests and the riots. I saw a video of rioting going on on the third, third street promenade in, in uh, well, actually it, was, it wasn't rioting, it was looting, basically. Um, a few days ago, that's, you know, six blocks from where my old apartment was. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, you gotta, you gotta moderate that fire hose of stressful imagery <laughs> that gets, uh, you know, pumped into your eyeballs if you let it. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it's completely just used to manipulate emotions and, and at the end of the day, manipulate action. Um, and once you realize that, it makes it easier to turn to, to older books and philosophy. Equanimity, equanimity uh, from the ancients. I, I need to do more of it myself. Yeah, it's, um, it's a goal this summer. It's a, I mean, I say all this, but I'm addicted to Twitter. Like I'm still on it <laughs> multiple hours a day. Uh, Look, let's be real. If you're, you know, if you've got some, if you've got a product or you've got a perspective about Bitcoin, you got to be on Twitter, right? By the way, I my the last couple months, okay, I kind of fell off of Twitter. I basically stopped tweeting for about six weeks. And the reason I did that, honestly, was I just had too much going on, you know, managing my clients' portfolios. Um, I had to I had to focus on that, you know, first and foremost, and not get distracted. But um, but yeah, the the it's hard to uh, it's hard to get a message out without Twitter, man. So. As long as I guess, I guess the, the thing one could do is tweet, which say what you got to say, tweet what you got to tweet and maybe not read everything in the feed, but you know, yeah, try to try to filter out as much as possible. That's been my goal. It's hard, man. Those geniuses, those geniuses uh, working for uh, Dorsey have figured out how to capture as much of our attention as possible. Yeah. And well, that's why I recommend TweetDeck. TweetDeck is really uh, sort of an unbastardized version of Twitter. So if you know how to use list and group people into list and, and about topics that you want to follow, yeah. uh, it's sort of a, an uh, undeprecated uh, version of Twitter that, that the algos haven't, haven't attacked yet. So 
word to the wise, if you're not using TweetDeck yet, I highly recommend it. All right. I need to get on it. Yeah. Um, speaking of getting on it, let's get on why we should invest in Bitcoin. You mentioned the presentation that you gave at the Value Bitcoin conference last week. And we were talking about transitions. We're in a transitionary period. And I really like the first slide of your uh, presentation, which which describes the fact that we're going to probably witness an economic showdown, a showdown of economic thoughts, one that has dominated the last century, which has been Keynesianism and uh, another that will probably um, resurge back into the mainstream and into the psyche of the masses, which is Austrian economics or the Mises view of the world. What What's going on here? Yeah, man, there's so, there's so much. I'll try to distill it. Um, look, I was raised a Keynesian, uh, so I had the Keynesian goggles on from day one. And Keynes was uh, technically brilliant, and he had a lot of great ideas, um, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, you know. <laughs> great idea. Super, communism, super idea. I love the idea. And the devil, of course, is in the details, which is to say, because of the way the actual world works, uh, the system doesn't work at all. <laughs> now, you know, Keynesian, Keynesian management of an economy is not as bad as, you know, the allegory with, uh, with communism, but it's still pretty bad. I mean, it, it's, it depends on the notion of stimulating when the economy is weak. So print, uh, print money and run deficits. And then of course you got to do the opposite when the economy is strong. And that second part is the hard part <laughs> that doesn't happen because as we know, uh, politicians are elected on two, four and six year cycles. So they just, you know, they deliver the goods, they deliver the pork, because um, if they didn't, they, you know, would probably be voted out of office for the most part. And so we get the accumulation of debt. And that's the biggest piece to my mind is the debt story. You look at the last century uh, and debt to GDP, it went up and down in the first part of the century. Obviously, it, it went up with World War II, but the levels were still at manageable levels. And... Um, we had this productivity explosion basically after uh, after that event. And then we were on Bretton Woods for 27 years and debt to GDP stayed flat. And then of course, 1971 comes around and we're off the gold standard. And that's where, uh, that's where things go sideways, so to speak. Um, I think you, did you guys have the WTF happen in, in 1971 guys on? Did you have Mr. Cool BP and uh, Heavenly Armed Clown? Yeah, we had them on. Yeah, had them on a couple of weeks ago. That yeah, was a yeah. great episode. That was a they, great episode. Those guys are that, great. Uh, I did the first pod that I did actually was Colin. Um, he he read uh, read my book and uh, and uh, he got me into the pod scene. So I thank him for that. But um, but yeah, a lot of bad stuff has well a lot of a lot of things have changed for the worse since 1971. But obviously, debt has been the big one. So debt to GDP went from about 145 percent to now call it 350 percent, right? two and a half X or two and a quarter X. And that's the problem we have to deal with. We've, we quote unquote, as a society have lived beyond our means for call it 50 years now. And that's the biggest piece. So the Keynesian system has gotten us into this mess and now we can't have a recession, right? Recessions are illegal. Uh, if, <laughs> if we, if the, you know, if the central bankers and if Congress allowed us to have a recession and clear out the dead wood, it would be a depression. So they can't let that happen, but you can only kick the can so far. 
And we don't know how long the can can be kicked. You look at Japan, Japan has extremely high debt levels. Um, I had this I had this debate with my partners, with my colleagues on a regular basis. They point at Japan and they say, look, you can have tons of debt and still the thing you know continues on. And my response to that is, yeah, that's true. But uh, once everybody is pushing debt levels, you know, government debt levels, let's say of 200 to 250% to 300% plus and total debt levels, including consumer debt and corporate debt in excess of those levels, then at some point there's going to be a change in perspective or a change in psychology. And this gets to the issue of inflation. Inflation, we have to first admit, is not all that well understood. I mean, there are many, many economists that have very fancy models that would like to tell us exactly how it's going to go. The reality is we don't really know because there is, um, there is that psychological element. Um, the story of inflation in recent years has been that, yes, we, you know, the banks have printed a bunch of money, but velocity is still low, right? A lot of those dollars are sitting on bank balance sheets or they're sitting in people's bank accounts. And until people start pushing those dollars and banks start pushing those dollars out of their accounts, inflation is going to be low. Well, the problem is it's really hard to tell in advance. It's really hard to predict when human psychology changes. Here again, credit to Ben Hunt. One of his ideas, I'm not sure if it's his original idea, but he definitely popularized it, is this idea of common knowledge, right? It's not what I know and what you know. It's not what everybody knows. It's what everyone knows that everyone knows. It's that moment in time where people are looking around and they're seeing, oh, trillions of dollars are being printed. And oh, the currency's you know, being debased. And at some point there's a, you know, there's sort of a tipping point, right? And then you get the cascade of change in human behavior, the velocity goes up, and then you end up with, uh, with an inflationary situation. So those are the things that, that, I'm, that I'm watching and thinking about, and I can go into more depth but getting to your question of, you know, Mises versus Keynes, uh, yeah, it's been a Keynesian world for the last century, but I think Mises uh, will have his revenge. I do as well. And uh, I'm just looking at the charts that you have on uh, the second slide here, page three. And just like you're just looking at it, like the 10-year yield curve, like, um, or the history of the yield mm-hmm. of the 10-year treasury note, like it's... It does not look like a good chart. <laughs> it is trending in one direction. That's towards zero. And so when it gets there, it's basically saying that the the ten year investment in the United States will will yield you no no return. And that's the trend that this chart particularly is going in, and many others, uh, other durations, whether it be ten year, thirty year, um, five year, look the same way. And that's the way everything gets, you know, every investment asset, well, almost every investment asset gets benchmarked. People say, well, if the 10 year, you know, treasury is yielding 5%, which it did many years ago, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to demand a 10% annualized return to hold stocks. I should say stocks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But if the 10 years at zero, well, maybe I only demand 5% annualized return from, from stocks. And that helps tell the story of why valuations are at near record levels, right? Multiples of earnings, multiples of cash flow. The valuations are really high because people are willing to bid up stocks to make that, you know, f- call it 5% annualized return because, uh, you know, it's better than they can do in treasuries. And uh, most of them still haven't uh, figured out the opportunity in Bitcoin. 
right? Um, that's it is crazy that Bitcoin like sits there, it still gets derided, and yet all this madness is still going on in the world. And that's so. Before we get in like Bitcoin, I want to stay on this topic, like the U.S. dollar, and whether or not it's truly being debased uh, at a rate that is uncontrollable into the future. Going back to Japan, like people love to point at that, like it's okay, it's okay. But if you look at the underlying uh, state of their society, they had the lowest birth rate in the world. It's under one, I believe, at this point. Yes. Uh, stu- studies have come out and asking people, like, why aren't you having children or more than one child? And 89% of some of the surveys that I've seen respond that it's economic. So even though the Nike uh, may be uh, at, a, at a, like, maybe performing well and uh, inflation, quote unquote, inflation, reported inflation isn't uh, extremely high according to the indices that uh, the, the central banks will put in front of you. It seems like if you look at the underlying society, uh, it it would it would paint a different picture. And that's coming here to the United States. Um, like we had our lowest birth rate, recorded birth rate on record, just uh, announced a few weeks ago, and in, in over 110 years since that's been recorded um i haven't seen any surveys asking why that birth rate has fallen here in america particularly but i would assume uh, money has has a big is a big factor in in people's delaying of family formation or just ditching of family formation at all probably coupled with cultural things uh like people being uh more selfish these days and in having more wanderlust wanting to travel over start a family probably a combination of things but then like I wrote about it in the bend, there's this huge, and this is the Keynesian mindset, huge delusion of the collective we that public debt doesn't matter because it's only money we owe ourselves. All crudeman. Debt is money we owe ourselves. I love that one. Ugh. Well, it doesn't make, well, and that's like I got in a fight with Joe Weisenthal about it over the weekend. And then this morning I still like thinking about it, decided to write about it. But I was still thinking about the tweet exchange we had on Saturday. I was like, this doesn't make any sense because they'll say, QE is a net zero effect because it's just Fed buying treasuries and it, it net zero on both balance sheets, on the bank's balance sheets and the Fed's balance sheet. But that's that's Here, really misrepresenting what's going on. I'm going right? to say because something which is going to piss some people off. And I'm not going to name names because I don't want to throw anyone under the bus. But I had this debate with one of my family members. I actually sent an email out a couple months ago. And... The discussion, or basically the the question I was asking was, you know, is it is it worth it? Is you know the lockdowns, is the deficit spending, is the money printing worth it? And the way I framed it was, you know, what was what was like the bad case scenario, you know, for lives lost due to COVID in the U.S. Probably a couple million, let's say, right? I mean, it's been I don't know what has it been, hundred thousand or whatever, but let's say if we'd done you know nothing, you know, two million people would have died. Okay, or or even three million. Let's say it was going to be really bad. Well, what, what did we spend to avoid, you know, that loss of life? Well, we spent three trillion or more. Okay. What does that amount to? Well, rough math comes to a million dollars a life. (laughs) Um, And so the question, is that worth it? And the question, and the answer is, well, depends on to whom, right? (laughs) Did you bring your checkbook party? (laughs) Are you ready? You ready to write a check for a million dollars? And, and this particular family member, his retort was, oh no, you've got this all wrong. 
Um, in the bailout package, you know, in the in the deficit spending package, the CARES Act, excuse me, um, you know, they're only spending whatever he he's, he said they're only spending 150 billion or something on healthcare. So that was his that was his lens. He was viewing it. By the way, he happens to be a boomer. His lens was that oh, they're only spending a few, you know a few hundred billion on healthcare. Of course, the answer is no, no, you're incurring all this debt that the older generations won't have to pay for because they'll be gone when the bill comes due and you've saddled it, you know, all onto the younger generation. This concept is one that I have to, you know, tread carefully around because I have lots of clients that are boomers and they don't want to hear this, but, um, well, boomers and older, right? Silent generation too. They got the best deal. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a misunderstood problem, this concept that, you know, there's nobody that's going to have to pay for this debt we're incurring today, number one, or number two, that it's this, you know, net zero transfer um, is, is extremely misguided, extremely misguided. Yeah, the net zero stuff is the thing that pisses me off because you either have to be ignorant, incompetent, or malicious to, to uh trot that line out particularly because it's not net zero the fed gets the treasuries and then they become unproductive assets on its balance sheet and it gives the banks dollars that's that's that transactions net zero yes they're getting equal amount of the banks are getting equal amount of dollars for the treasuries that they hand over to the fed those dollars are then being levered in the system which creates crazy inequality and they're being levered in financial assets which affords the owners of those assets Un, like undue benefits uh, it doesn't make any sense like to say that's net zero is being completely uh disingenuous like it's it's insane it is it's i i many of my clients do not understand that they have lived out their lives during this period of just ongoing debt incurrence and they have yes they think that it was all their you know hard work and, and brilliance that made them wealthy and it was partly that, but it was also partly just living through this period of uh, borrowing, you know, it, yeah, basically juicing the economy with the expectation that some ju- uh, future generation um, will pay it back. And it's really hard for people, I don't know, hard for people to understand, you know, or they just don't want, don't want to understand it. I'll say, I'll say one thing, which has dual meaning. So first, there will be blood you know this movie. I think you've talked. Have you talked about it on the pod? We've we've brought it up. I think I'll drink your milkshake has come up. Yeah, a times. exactly. I'll drink your I drink your milkshake. So there will be blood. Remember that because I think if we don't get the debt problem solved, there actually will be blood. <laughs> but the movie, okay, is based on a novel called Oil, which was written by Upton Sinclair, and Upton Sinclair, you know, wrote several famous books, and he was a very quotable guy. But one, but my favorite quote of his is: "It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it." Right? And in in one way, the older generation's "quote unquote" salary, you know, Social Security entitlements, all this unfunded liabilities, depends on not understanding this debt problem. And likewise, uh, when you look at the legacy, you know, financial system, this is part of my mission these days, right? Educating basically wealth managers, bankers, et cetera, about Bitcoin, their salary also depends on them not understanding it. This, I think, helps partly explain why 
it has taken so long for these people to uh, to figure it out. They just have they have the opposite incentive. And man, you get the blinders on. It's really hard to see the truth when uh, you've got uh, your livelihood depending on on something different. Yeah, especially if you're sitting sitting comfy with that two and twenty. It's hard to to justify two and twenty for Bitcoin when it's a bearer asset. You should probably hold, and there's not really too much active management needed to 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 invest wisely in in Bitcoin specifically. Yeah. And this was part of my you know, personal journey was, like I said, I wrote that uh, research report in 2017. And my, my view at the time was, I don't know who's going to win. So I'm going to hold a basket, basically, you know, hold the portfolio and Bitcoin will always be, I shouldn't say will always, but Bitcoin should be the largest part of the portfolio. But I want to own all this other stuff because, you know, I don't know what's going to succeed. And now when I look at the investment thesis today, and likewise, over the last, you know, three months, six months, year year and a half uh it's pretty clear to me that bitcoin is the thing right hard money assets are the thing and um you know will there be i hate to say it like will there be another you know altcoin uh, bull market sadly there probably will be uh, i tend to I, I tend to be in in the same boat as cory clipston he's like look even if it's a fraction in percentage of the of the last one well, if the magnitude of Bitcoin gets where we think it will, then that'll still be huge, absolute dollars. I could say the same for gold, by the way. This is a here. I'm going to get some more flack from uh, you know from uh, from the freaks out there. Um, I think gold makes more money, accumulates or accrues more value in the next few years than Bitcoin, just because it's so much bigger, right? If gold is a ten trillion dollar asset, or let's say the monetary premium embedded in gold is you know six or seven trillion. And it accumulates, you know, five trillion of value, right? So gold goes to whatever twenty five hundred an ounce. It's at seventeen hundred now. Um, do I think that Bitcoin's going to accumulate five trillion of value in the next, you know, four years? Yeah, it might. Uh, I think it's going to take longer than that. But um, but yeah, hard money assets are probably an important thing to own. This for our clients, you know, for my clients is basically a, it. It didn't used to be. It's now a, a new sort of discrete category on its own. And it's Bitcoin and it's gold. And uh, with the with the money printer going, brrr, you're going to want to own those hard money assets, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that's why we're both here. And so I guess this is a good question. While we're on this topic, as uh, as somebody who's advising clients on allocating a portion of their in, uh, investable funds into Bitcoin. How do you, how much into Bitcoin? Like, how do you, there's obviously going to be a transitionary period. Yes. Stocks, you, stocks can go up for quite some time if Fed manipulation uh, persists the way it has for the last uh, 10 years, or yeah, 10 years specifically. Um, how do you, I know I just said you shouldn't like actively manage Bitcoin positions, but how do you sort of, uh, transition into this uh, and and how are you advising your clients on doing that? Yeah, a couple things there. So I tweeted, I think last week, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, in March when I was buying stonks, uh, you know, Bitcoiners thought I was crazy. And uh, when I was buying Bitcoin in March, you know, my stock investors and stock clients thought I was crazy, right? Both sides thought buying the other asset was nuts. Um, I can definitely create a scenario or imagine a scenario where, as you suggest, you know, there's just so much money printing that basically every asset goes up. 
So then the question is, well, what goes up more? Or, you know, do you get debasement of purchasing power such that actually you're only, you know, treading water or even losing net value in certain assets versus others? Um, I do think that the hard money portion of an investment portfolio is really important. And we can talk more about inflation and probably should, but I don't know when it's going to hit, although I don't think it's going to take, you know, it's not going to take 10 years. When I published the book, you know, I told people basically, I think we're going to see inflation within a decade. That was before COVID. <laughs> now I don't think it's going to take a decade, right? Um, so we'll see um, how that goes. But but as far as portfolio sizing is concerned, you know, it's hard not to be long stocks and we're still long stocks. And, you know, this this face ripping rally has uh, has so far uh, paid off in that regard. Not as much as Bitcoin, though, at least year to date or as gold. And Bitcoin is the outperformer so far in, in 2020. And I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. So I want that allocation to grow as, you know, a component of the portfolio. Now, we've started small. Um, you know, we're greater than zero, but it's still, you know, it's still a very small percentage. And I won't, you know, sort of give specific numbers because it varies a little bit client to client. But I would like to see, um, I would like to see us add to the position with time. You know, I'll, I expect to see some, I expect to see the portfolio allocation to increase just as a result of Bitcoin, you know, beating the market, right? Beating stocks, beating basically everything else in terms of price appreciation. But I also would like to be accumulating uh, over time, you know, for the rest of this year, you know, into next year, because I used to be very skeptical of the, you know, sort of four-year cycle, you know, stock to flow model, you know, sort of periodic repeat around the halving. And yet it seems to be playing out again, right? Every, every day that goes by and I, and I, and I see what the chart looks like, it, it seems to be more likely that uh, history will repeat in that regard. And if it does, you know, then we could have a huge, uh, huge bull market, you know, through the end of this year and into next year. And man, you want to, as an investor, you want exposure to that. Yeah. All right. I'm thinking of like when we, when I worked, when we, when I worked at the managed futures fund, we were fighting for like 5% of people's portfolios. Just like a, as like a yeah. insurance hedge, uh, within a portfolio, go out, get your stocks, bonds, 5% allocation of managed futures just in case shit hits the fan. Um, that's one thing I, I toil about, toil over a lot. It's like, when do these asset managers start moving that, that insurance part of the portfolio um, allocation from below 10% to maybe between 10 and 20% um, because of the, the potential outperformance against the market? Because it does seem like something's got to hit Ed here, but we've been saying this for years too. It's like the goddamn, I feel <laughs> when's, like it's when's the, like when's in a crazy house. When's the herd coming? I think obviously Paul Tudor Jones, you know, Paul Tudor Jones runs a $40 billion hedge fund. His going on record being long Bitcoin, that matters. That's one. Two is actually, I think the hard money thesis. In other words, to my mind and other people have other opinions. I mean, but as an, as the investment case today, Digital gold is like the strongest narrative, right? Okay. So then the question is, well, how much gold do you want to own? It may surprise some people to learn that a lot. And I would even probably say the majority of wealth managers still have zero allocation to gold. Um, so, so if you're, if the thesis or 
if the investment thesis, let's say, and there's many reasons to own Bitcoin, right? Not just, you know, not just investment, but if the investment thesis is the hardest money ever, um, well, if I can't even get an allocation of gold into my portfolio as a wealth manager, you know, then how am I going to get Bitcoin basically? Well, and you could argue, well, Bitcoin is better than gold. And I think that's true, but it is, you know, sort of a, a farther bridge. It's a farther leap. So, yeah, I think that I think that the hard money thesis becoming more mainstream as the money keeps getting printed, the fiat keeps getting printed, is going to be a significant driver for the Bitcoin investment thesis as far as institutional money is concerned. No, I agree. And like we were talking before we hit record about Dave Portnoy and Shroop Bucks and <laughs> um, you have that, him like being a huge personality sort of calling that out was, it was a huge cultural event for me personally. Like I, I, I noted it in the bent and on top of that, you have a bunch of people in these protests. Like why do we pay taxes? If, if the fed can just print money, it seems like culturally at least uh, from what I'm observing, it seems that a tide seems to be turning and people are beginning to question the efficacy of, of the U S dollar and fed policy more, um, more aggressively now, like people you wouldn't expect to, in the past, I would if when I was working at Barcel, if if you would have told me that that Dave Portnoy would be calling out Fed policy in early 2020, I would be like, "What the fuck is going on?" <laughs> it's true, it's true, man. There's there's signs and signals, and I have to believe that the average person out there, and as you know, there, I mean, there isn't. It's sort of silly in some ways to think about the quote unquote average person. It's really more about you know. How many get get red pilled, you know, in sequence? You know, some percentage of the population starts to question, as you say, wait, why do I pay taxes if they can just print the money? What you know, what what does this all mean? And then you've got, as you say, mainstream, you know, guys, big audience base audiences basically talking about this stuff, um, as well as just the growth of your audience and you know other people's audiences, right? That's also an indicator. The more people li listen to uh, Marty Bent and uh, various other podcasters out there is, is more exposure. So there, uh, time, time is our friend. And, um, yeah, another way to look at it too. I was talking, um, to someone recently about sort of inverting it, which is if we get to this time next year or, you know, basically 12 months from now or 18 months from now and Bitcoin price hasn't moved significantly higher, you know, I may start to question the hard money thesis. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I'll start to wonder if, if uh, not if I was wrong. Well, I will. I will start to. Let's see if my con conviction will be a little bit uh, will be a little bit shaken. Yeah. Well, it's a good transition to further into your presentation. Is what would make a hard money thesis appealing? And obviously, that is real inflation, inflation in the real world, and you have. Uh, a slide titled the gathering inflation storm you break it down into three um three uh, sections of time 2001 to 2016 2016 to 2019 and then 2020 to 2030 first why these particular time periods um and then we'll go through the the factors of deflation and inflation on on this chart yeah no that sounds great i'm happy to do it and this, I think, folds into you know sort of the Jeff Booth technological deflation thesis. I know you had him on the on the pod. 
I think his book's uh, great too. I really like the, you know, the thought process he brings to it. And this is, you know, it's made basically one of the major inputs here. So big picture, I like, you know, since we were talking about Mises before, I like Mises' framework uh, of three major categories of goods in the economy. Okay. There is consumption goods, right? That's stuff we, we consume every day, food, clothing, etc. There's capital goods. That is the means of production by which we make either the consumption goods, you know, or more capital goods to make consumption goods. And then there's the monetary good. That's money. And this is admittedly a simple or simplistic framework, but I think it basically works. So you print more of the money, uh, right? And then it flows into the other two. You print, create more of the monetary good. Okay, it flows into the capital goods and it flows into the consumption goods. Now, to my mind, the, the effect on the capital goods is clear, right? Uh, you print money, as you were saying, you know, basically markets go up, stocks go up, real estate goes up. And that's like an unambiguous outcome. And you get the Cantillian effect, um, basically, of the money flowing into, into these assets as well. Okay. Uh, but on the consumption goods side, it's a little trickier. There's multiple factors at work. And this is, this is what we're talking about. This is what most economists are talking about when they're talking about quote unquote inflation. It's really inflation of consumer prices or, or, or goods and services for the most part. And so the framework that I've laid out is, is yeah, this short of mul several driving factors for consumer price inflation and why it may be different now than it has been recently. So item one is technology and technology, you know, as Jeff Booth says, is always deflationary. He would probably even make the case that it is accelerating, right? That technology is moving so quickly that that deflationary effect of technology is increasing. And I am open to that idea, although I'm not sort of 100% convinced, but let's just say that technology is, is a deflationary force always. Okay, then you've got globalization and trade. And you laid out those time periods, 2001 to 2016. Okay, China joined the World Trade Organization, WTO, in 2001. This was hugely deflationary, right? Because basically, you know, hundreds of millions of Chinese workers came onto the world market and that held down the cost of production of many goods. So that was a deflationary force. That inverted though with the election of Donald Trump and we got protectionism and tariffs. And so the, you know, outsourcing of jobs basically from the US to China uh, went into reverse and what had been a deflationary force uh, became inflationary at the margin because the cost of production of, of, uh, of something and the cost of the good when you slap a tariff on it is increased. But now with the pandemic, looking forward into the next decade, that's into overdrive, right? If, if there was some doubt about whether it was a good idea to have all our supply chains running through China, that doubt has now gone away, right? It's clear that when you can't even supply yourself with critical, uh, you know, protective equipment and, uh, basically medical supplies, pharmaceutical or, or physical supplies or otherwise, um, you got something wrong. So now we're, it looks like there's consensus, rare consensus in politics, right? What's one thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on? Well, there isn't much, but it seems like one is, you know, everything going through China is a problem. So that is now, I would argue, even more inflationary than it had been, you know, since Trump got elected. Okay. Next factor is government stimulus. Now, government stimulus, I'm talking about printing money and deficit spending, had, has been basically going on for the last 20 years. I mean, it through every bubble and downturn, right? You had the dot-com bubble, the internet, that popped, and, and you had stimulus. 
Then you had the global financial crisis, you had stimulus. And so that's sort of been a, a constant going on in waves. But now that's, of course, in, in hyperdrive. I mean, it used to be that uh, we talked about a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. Pretty soon it's real money. Now we're talking trillion dollars here, trillion dollars there. So that's got to be at the margin uh, inflationary. Huge stimulus going on right now as a result of the pandemic. And then the last piece, which I think doesn't get enough airtime, is demographics. And there's two things going on. Most people think of the baby boomers as the, the biggest um, generation or cohort, basically, in, in modern American history. But actually, bigger than the, than the boomers is the uh, millennial generation, right? They're kids. And what had happened in recent years was the demographics effect was sort of neutral, you know, in the first part of this century, you know, 2001 to 2016. But then what happened was you had a period where the millennials were joining the workforce. This was incremental labor coming into the workforce, which at the margin is more supply of labor, which keeps wages down, right? More people competing for the same wages. So that was a deflationary factor, which is now reversed because that cohort, right? Which you are a member basically has, has joined the workforce. Now we've got what's going on with the boomers and that is ongoing at the moment. I have clients who are now retiring in mass. That means they're taking their labor out of the labor pool so that's reducing the supply of labor, which again should be at the margin inflationary, you know, for wages. There should be wage pressure there. So basically, suffice to say that there's several factors here that have sort of flipped in terms of they were either neutral or deflationary in the last 15 years, call it. And now those, you know, those uh, those factors are pushing upward, um, likely. Uh, pushing upward in terms of what they mean for inflation. Now, is it going to be inflationary soon? I don't think so. I think we've got this huge negative demand shock from the pandemic. People aren't spending. But I think once that passes, then we'll have to reckon with the possibility that these newly inflationary factory uh, factors um, are, are likely to push up consumer prices and goods prices. And I'll add one more thing to the mix, which is not in the presentation which is what's going on in the banking system and specifically interest on excess reserves. When you look at all the money that's gotten pumped into the system by the Fed, a lot of it just ended up on the bank balance sheets. And specifically, it ended up in accounts that the banks just held with the Fed, right? This is the excess reserves beyond what their banks are required to hold um, at the Fed, basically as safe collateral, you know, the, the safe uh, base of the monetary system. Well, the Fed had been paying like 2% annualized interest on excess reserves for a period of a couple of years recently. Well, you know, in a low interest rate environment, if you're a bank and you can earn 2% a year, you know, for zero risk to have your money at the Fed, that is truly a quote, you know, risk-free asset, right? The deposit at the Fed, you're going to do that. Well, what's happened recently is they, is they removed the reserve requirements, as you know, and they took the interest on excess reserves, right? The Fed was paying the banks to hold there and they cut it almost to zero. So now there is a stronger incentive for the banks to push money elsewhere away from their excess reserve account at the Fed and into the economy. And that should create credit, which effectively you know, creates money supply with the money multiplier. And so that's another factor that today is at the margin you know, more likely to increase the money supply and increase uh, in or be inflationary, let's say that wasn't there, you know, very recently, say last year. Yeah. And so these last two particular 
uh, factors are what scare me the most. The combination of government stimulus in the form of helicopter money and uh, the Fed also sort of cutting rates and sort of incentivizing uh, credit expansion beyond that. And especially when you lock down, like I, and we're sort of already seeing aspects of inflation, especially meat prices. When you, when you lock everybody down, you airdrop money into their bank accounts and you shut down supply chains, therefore creating uh, scarcer consumable goods. It seems like a perfect storm for inflation in my mind yeah dude my so i have been mostly you know locked down i haven't left the house much my wife god bless her makes the weekly uh grocery store trip right and yeah we've got you know there's some stuff that's not available the uh the leafy greens are in short supply the meat is is rationed basically that you know you're limited at least in my neighborhood here in la you can only buy you know one serving of chicken basically you know two servings of beef you know one serving of pork and yeah she she picked up some steaks because uh you know we always make sure we get at least a steak a week and uh the price i can't remember the per pound price but you know the couple of small fillets was like 30 bucks and uh that's certainly way higher than it has been past um so there's definitely inflation showing up in certain goods uh, and services for sure. And then, of course, as, as you know well, the other story of inflation is, um, you know, the CPI, 42% of the CPI is housing cost. And housing cost, as computed in the CPI, is based on a base, basically a fictional notion of, uh, of it's, I'm trying to remember the term, it's like owner's equivalent rent um, I've got it in the book, but, um, but yeah, it's basically the theoretical cost that a homeowner would, uh, would charge themselves for, for rent. And as a matter of fact, when you look at the real estate market, so interest rate, real estate, as you know, is, is the most levered asset in the economy, right? There is more debt supporting the real estate market than in any other asset. So of course, when you keep interest rates down and you lower them and you lower them and you lower them, then your mortgage pay payment is decreased. And if you are a landlord and you own a property that you rent to people, well then yes, you can afford to charge less rent if your mortgage uh, cost is low. But of course, the effect of all this is that, you know, a house that used to cost, uh, you know, 200 grand now costs four or 500 grand. And although you may be making the same mortgage payment to support that now more expensive house, right? Because the interest rate is lower. So the same mortgage payment supports more house. The problem is you have to some, somehow you got to stump up the increase in the down payment, right? I mean, 40 years ago in my neighborhood, yeah, you could buy a house with a down payment of, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 grand probably. And um, now millennials have to find a way to scrape together a hundred grand, 200 grand, you know, for a down payment for a house in a major city. And uh, it's not so easy to accumulate that amount of capital, uh, you know, when you're starting your career. Yeah, especially if you have student loans and you want to have a good health care. It's, I mean, we've talked about it ad nauseum on, on this podcast, but the bastardization of the CPI and the fact that it doesn't, include many goods like healthcare, education, housing, 
well, well, it has that housing heuristic, but again, that's a heuristic and it doesn't take into consideration the principle that needed, like you just mentioned. It's like, again, like, is it criminal? Is it sheer incompetence? Is it, is it malice? Like, are these, like, is the keep this system afloat at all cost mentality leading people to do truly evil things to, to, to represent uh, inflation in this way? Like, it's completely... Uh, illegitimate and, and, and it's a complete lie. It's, like to, it's a total to, shame to say that my my wife people don't have those costs. Yeah, my wife will tell you that they're. I'm like a pretty even keeled guy, you know. Uh, sometimes too much so, um, but there's so there's not that many things that get me excited or pissed off. <laughs> but this is like the one thing that gets me pissed off is is the yes is basically the giant intergenerational theft and and it's more than that of course it's also the you know like we talk about the cantillion effects and you know the the explicit pushing of money and value to financial assets that are owned you know only by a few by the way this all accrues to the benefit of of me and my clients right <laughs> great news for my uh, you know for for the investment accounts uh, i manage Thank you, Federal Reserve, for uh, for bailing us out uh, one more time. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's corrosive to society ultimately, and I do worry. I mean, I do lose sleep about the resolution of it. And this gets into sort of my you know my ethos on Bitcoin. Like, don't get me wrong. If Bitcoin does well, I'll make money. So I got <laughs> number go up. There's a greed factor. You know, that's that's real. Um, but I also take the view that the sooner we bring forward, you know, the monetary transition, hopefully the less painful will be the unwind. Because as you know, the longer you kick the can, the longer you uh, keep that heroin uh, addict on the junk, you know, the, the, the worse is the ultimate outcome when, uh, when he has to get off the stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're saying, saying it play out right now, like with, with the riots and, the protests, obviously, there, um, people are hitting the streets not because of monetary reasons, but I think there's some tangential um, effects pl- at play here, where it is everybody's rioting um, for the death of George Floyd. But I think there's an underlying um, theme of people feeling completely disenfranchised and sort of lashing out at the system. May may not all know what is the largest contributor to their um, to their strife to their economic strife, which is central banking. Um, but it seems like people are extremely frustrated and, and lashing out. Yes, I agree with that, and I you know I worry, yeah, I worry about all these factors, and I worry about um, yes, I worry about the underlying causes. And I think it's it's like anything else. There's you know there's multi there's multiple causes. It's multivariate, uh, but there's no doubt that if you create an environment where many people lose their jobs because you've you know because I say you because the government you know or the local government, state, whatever jurisdiction makes a decision to shut down the economy and basically force people uh, out of their livelihoods, then you're inviting. Um, you're inviting civil unrest, regardless of, you know, the underlying issues of, you know, racism and, and mistreatment, um, you know, of citizens, especially black citizens by, you know, by the police. Um, 
that's very important also. But uh, yeah, you just you just add fuel to the fire when uh, you know when you when you implement some of these policies. Yeah, and I let's just repeat the one policy you said: the government shut down the economy. Like that statement should never be able to be uttered if we actually live in a truly capitalistic and free society. Like governments shouldn't be able to shut down whole economies. Yes, I too was freaking out in the beginning and it was for a two week shutdown, but after two weeks, after 90 days, after approaching probably 120 days at this point, uh, the, the control that the governments have over people being able to uh, weigh the risk of whether or not they should go conduct economic activity is, is becoming very scary. So I agree a hundred percent. And my latest thinking Marty has been, I'm of two minds, right? One thing that I just keep thinking more about and reading more about and learning more about is I don't want to say chaos, but you know, just basically the behavior of complex systems and the ability to predict, which is to say we have no ability to predict, you know, what's going to happen in a complex system. And human societies are complex systems and economies are complex systems. So, so one, you know, angle is, okay, <laughs> anytime you, you poke that animal, right? Anytime you try to push it in a certain direction, you're likely to be surprised by what, you know, ultimately happens, right? You're likely to, you poke the bear, you might be surprised uh, what happens to you. So that's one. And then on the other side, and that basically tells you that you just don't know what the future is and it's impossible to model and, um, and so you should have great humility about trying to manipulate or direct that complex system. And then the other side is I look at the debt problem, you know, and I read Ray Dalio and I say, how can this not resolve itself basically with, you know, with inflation? I mean, yes, there's other ways to deal with excess debt. You can have austerity, but that's very difficult. You can have, you know, mass defaults in a, in a depression, but governments won't let that happen. Um, you know, you can have taxation redistribution. I think we'll probably get, you know, some of that. You can have a jubilee, right? You can have debt forgiveness, which is a good, which is appealing in principle. But if you do too much of it, then people start to say, well, what is contract, you know, what is contract law basically in the, in the foundation of the economy disappears. Um, so yeah, kind of all, most roads, well, financial repression is another option, which we're already seeing, right? We're already seeing interest rates get extremely low. We may even see more capital controls. That'll, that's something I'm watching out for. Um, but yeah, all roads lead to inflation. So I'm, I'm really of two, you know, two minds. Part of me says it's got to go in this direction eventually. But then part of me says, I don't know, you know, I don't know what I know. I don't know how to, how to predict civil unrest or what's going to happen with the election or, you know, just where, where this country's going or where the world's going. It's a, it's a humbling time. It really is. And well, time of opportunity too, right? Like, thank God Bitcoin's here. Hopefully um, success continues and more and more people begin to wake up to the thesis that, uh, of Bitcoin and why maybe a good idea to get a hold of some if you can. <clears throat> because it's, it's to me at least, it's drastically uh, important that we, that we start building systems like Bitcoin and, and, assets like bitcoin hard money assets become more mainstream and popular because again this is it's getting insane yeah and and, and it's and it's uh it seems more and more like the only way out right the only likely way out 
I actually, so yeah. this is interesting, right? You know, getting back to sort of the investment thesis, because I had this debate with, with one of my partners and he's, and he is, he does not believe we're, he, his position is basically, I'm not willing to hedge against inflation. I'm not willing to position a portfolio, you know, to hedge against inflation, basically until I see the inflation show up, right? Not until I see the whites of their eyes, am I going to shoot at them, right? And, and my perspective is, well, <laughs> by that time, you're going to be paying a lot more for the insurance, right? You're going to be paying $2,500 an ounce for gold, and you're going to be paying, you know, 50K for Bitcoin. And so it's, it's unwise to, uh, it's unwise to uh, not position yourself um, in advance of that. And so, yeah. Yeah, the slippage, I would imagine, if, if uh, an inflationary, God forbid, hyperinflationary event were to sort start occurring would would not be would not be advantageous. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my view is you got to you got to position yourself soon. You got to position yourself now. And the thesis is so clear and so asymmetric. Um, it, again, in addition, like the inflation is one thing and then the, the trust in government is, is another thing. This is another debate I have with my with my uh, with my partners, which is, let's say, you know, this pandemic was sort of a nothing burger. I mean, look, a lot of people have already died, so it isn't nothing. I mean, it's definitely taken many lives, but let's say that it was significantly overblown, and we're back in a growing economy and we're back in a bull market soon. I mean, we're already it looks like in a bull market, but and we can talk about that, but. Well, let's say it's all you know rainbows and unicorns and everything's coming up daisies. That still doesn't make me feel good about it. What I just went through, right? Because to your point, it's like, wait a minute, we just shut down the entire economy for months at a time, you know, and put you know tens of millions of people out of work, and uh, <laughs> and meanwhile the the government grows, right? Leviathan grows, Goliath grows, and so. This is this is another debate I have with my wife is, you know, she's more, you know, sort of progressive, you know, larger government than I am. And the point I, I raise with her frequently is, you know, the, the bigger government gets as a percent of GDP, the more you have at stake when they screw up, right? Mm. A, a small government that screws up badly, you know, relatively speaking, doesn't do as much damage. But when the government is huge, then minor policy screw ups really have significant effect. And so, yeah, I come out on the other side of this saying, well, if it was a big problem, you know, if, if it's still a big ongoing problem, then, you know, we're in for dark times, right? It's going to be a, a long recession. And if it turns out that it wasn't so bad, well, then still we just witnessed our government, you know, probably go off the rails and, and kind of blow it. And neither scenario gives me more confidence in the system. And so every time I lose a little bit of confidence in the system, I transfer a little bit more value into into Bitcoin, right? I stack a few more sats. Yeah, I find myself stacking sats every day at this point. Yep. Uh, Me too. Me too. As you know, uh, as you know, I use Swan Bitcoin for that purpose. <laughs> so there's the shill. The, <laughs> Got to get the shill in. But beyond the shill, like you mentioned earlier, that you think we're in a in a bull market. I definitely want to dive into that and. Also, this slide on uh, Bitcoin's correlation in the context of other risk assets or correlation with or with correlation to or non-correlation to other risk assets, because um, that's been a huge meme this year is that everybody's saying that Bitcoin's 
moving a lockstep with equities and it's sort of driven by fed policy as well um but uh bitcoin does seem to be non-correlated when you actually dive into the numbers and expand your your time horizon a bit yeah yep so i agree and and there's a couple ways to look at correlation so the the numbers i lay out in the book are monthly return data right and i use i go back as far as the uh, reasonable or dependable data go back, which is about 2011. You know, prior to that, Bitcoin's price was below a dollar and you probably can't trust the price data. And I correlate it to US stocks, that's the S&P, and foreign developed market stocks, that's MSCI EFA, and emerging market stocks, and gold and bonds in the form of, form of, the, um, of the Barclays Aggregate Index. So those five major asset classes. And yeah, on monthly data, Bitcoin has less than 20% uh, correlation. So it seems to be uncorrelated. The second thing I looked at was, you know, monthly data is nice, but I got to tell you as an investor, I don't care that much about monthly uh, correlation. What I really care about is, is when the shit hits the fan, right? <laughs> when stocks and other risk assets are, are falling dramatically, then what is the asset doing? And so when I published the book, I think there had been five periods well, we hadn't had, by the way, a significant bear market in stocks up to that point. I mean, I think we technically maybe had a bear market on the S&P in late 2018, like just barely, but it didn't last very long. So anyway, in those five periods, uh, it was two of the periods Bitcoin outperformed, two of the periods it underperformed, and one of the periods it did about the same. And those were those were the various crises of the last decade, which were, you know, it wasn't the global financial crisis because we didn't have data then, but it was the euro crisis. You know, and it was the it was the China crisis when they when they depegged the currency, um, et cetera. So, so yeah, it did better in some cases, did worse in other cases. Now, obviously, in the most recent downturn, you know, Bitcoin had that tough day when it tanked. You know, went down more than fifty percent in March, but it sprang back very quickly. So, what does it all mean? Well, it, it, what it means is, you know, the correlation. You can talk about correlation in aggregate, or you can talk about correlation conditional on circumstances. So we talked about what happened in March, right? Well, in a scenario where it's just a liquidation, where market participants are panicking and they are selling literally every asset. They're selling stocks, they're selling gold, you know, they're selling Bitcoin, they're selling, you know, liquid real estate, basically anything, then it's gonna go down with everything else. Um, so then the question is, well, what does the future hold? And People talk about Bitcoin being negatively correlated or a hedge. I think we're two orders of magnitude away from that, right? I think we'll be talking about that when Bitcoin is deep into the six figures in terms of dollar price. So will it eventually happen? Yes, if, re if it reaches, you know, Bitcoin reaches its potential, but I don't think we're anywhere near that. And I think in the meantime, it's okay that it's sort of broadly uncorrelated on average except for in liquidation circumstances where it is correlated and it is what it is and that's fine. And we're going to find out, you know, if, and when we get inflation, then we're going to really find out if it behaves as a, as a hard money asset. I think it likely will, but yeah, only time will tell. Only time will tell. I'm optimistic. I think I uh, was thumbing through the sovereign individual again over the weekend. I, uh, I lent my original copy out to a friend and haven't seen it in a couple of years. So I decided to, to buy a new copy and it came and nice. just going back to like page 24 when they predicted that this stuff would come. Uh, 
and it has been predicted like the, the or at least the writing has been on the wall for quite some time that these governments and, and the sovereign individual they were focused on emerging market uh like like russia and in asia in the 90s and it seems that this uh that's what i'm looking for this um give me a second i'm gonna get it i'm gonna get it regime change no it's uh undisciplined undisciplined monetary policy has spread from emerging markets to the big dogs in bank of japan euro and and now the fed as well and and undisciplined uh coordination across the world will not bode well um for, for in the long term it just can't like it Am I crazy to say it just can't? Like, you no, can't no, I, have all this debt? Like, or are we wrong? Are we just wrong? Is MMT the future? I agree. I don't think I don't think uh, money can be printed in infinite amounts without ultimately resulting in inflation. It just doesn't stand to reason. And it goes back to the comment you made, you know, before, which is also the popular meme now, which is, if we can print infinite money, why have taxes? And the answer is, well, then we shouldn't have taxes. We should just print infinite money. And of course, we know that that's not true. <laughs> it doesn't work out. Uh, so yeah, I, I I am very bullish. I am quite optimistic on Bitcoin. I wrote it in the book and I continue to say today that it is not only the most attractive and asymmetric investment opportunity I've seen in my 17 career, year career, but I think it's likely the best one I'll ever see <laughs> in my career, depending on how long I live, I guess. But yeah, it's it's very attractive, and um, again, we you know we've been talking through the investment lens, but all the other geopolitical and authoritarian and freedom uh, limiting things that are going on throughout the world, all you know, all those roads point to Bitcoin adoption. I completely agree. Um, before we wrap up here. One question I had in my head earlier, I forgot to ask. How are you moving into Bitcoin for your clients? What what products are you using yeah, specifically? Yeah. So I don't like to, you know, get specific and you know show particular products. Um, I think people know that there are. I'll, I'll speak generally. So there is one product today that you can buy in your brokerage account. That's ticker GBTC. That's the Bitcoin Trust. Um, the downside of buying that is you're paying a premium to net asset value, right? So you got to you got to pay a dollar twenty for a dollar's worth of Bitcoin. That's one downside. The other downside, obviously, is it's you know it's custodied. It's a third party. Um, so, so that's one product. Um, there are also limited partnership structures. Um, there's a few of them out there, which are basically hedge fund structures where you don't have to pay a premium and you buy basically at net asset value. Oh, by the way, the, the downside with all these investment products, of course, also is there's you know management fees. I mean, you're paying you're paying someone basically to to hold your Bitcoin. Um, another thing that um, I'm working on is actually for Swan, which is an institutional option, you know, for dollar cost averaging, basically auto stacking Bitcoin over time on a weekly basis or even a daily basis, and you know that's that's a product we're working on. It doesn't exist yet, but I think there are well, I know there are also others in the marketplace that are working with other exchanges and custodians basically to try to uh, to launch products um, for investment purposes. 
this is obviously, you know, separate and discreet from holding your own keys. I tell my clients, I tell everyone, you know, try to learn about holding your own keys, get comfortable, experiment with small amounts of money, you know, basically raise your game continuously. Right. And, uh, and try to custody yourself. Um, and so that's the long-term goal, but, uh, but yeah, in the, in the meantime, anyone who's trusting a third party with their investment strategy and their portfolio management, these are some of the options, you know, that are either available today or likely to, uh, to be available in the future. I think eventually we'll get an ETF, but man, who knows when that happens? Could be a while. Not holding my breath for the ETF. Yeah, I'm not either. (laughs) Nor am I particularly excited by it. Like I, I would I'd be interested to see if like a product emerges where like something like unchained spreading further where you can engage like a multi-sig quorum with your money manager and, and sort of have at least some custody of, of the Bitcoin. I'm actually aware of, I'm aware of one provider that's already doing this who I just met recently. So I'm, and, and they're doing it, you know, multi-asset. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shill them directly, (laughs) but, but what you're describing is starting to happen. And it's an interesting, you know, when you think about the future of Bitcoin, where, where can this go? It's a, it's an issue, right? I mean, the more third party, I mean, I know you talk about this. I know uh, Matt Adele talks about this. The more third party custody, especially concentrated third party custody, and I'm not going to name names here, there is of those, of those Bitcoins, you know, the, the worse it is, right? And so in the ultimate maturation of Bitcoin, I am hopeful that more people are running nodes, more people are managing their own wallets, that more people have what you say, you know, multi-sig or, or sharded, you know, deep, deep cold storage Bitcoins. Um, I think there may be a transition period before we reach there. Sort of like there's been a transition period, you know, with mining, right? You know, it got actually more concentrated for a while. Um, you're doing, I think, your part to uh, to develop the the onshore, uh, you know, mining industry, which I think is actually really important for the long term of Bitcoin is, is distributing that hash power more broadly throughout the world. So, yeah, in the short term, this stuff could concentrate it could concentrate, it could go counter to decentralization. And it's going to, you know, it's going to take effort basically by people to uh, educate people or educate holders to then take it into their own hands, take possession of the keys. And, uh, and that's, that's the goal. That's the long term. It may take a while. No, I agree. And that's, I harp on this every once in a while too. Santiago Siri, when he was on here, the first or second or second episode, second or third episode, made a really good point of like when cities got industrial plumbing for the first time, people had to learn how to wash their hands and wipe their asses and take showers. That's sort of what we have to do here. You now that uh, public key cryptography in the form of Bitcoin is is going to go mainstream. People need to uh, learn how to. Uh, control their keys and secure their keys. Uh, It's just going to take time. And I'm, I'm confident the UX has improved drastically since I've been paying attention and, and using Bitcoin uh, just in the seven years alone. Uh, So I think moving forward that that trend will continue. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. I agree completely. I mean, as long as cryptography, well, let me frame it differently. We need cryptography, you know, to preserve basic human freedoms 
And the way things have gone with the internet, if private key management does not become a core life skill in the next decade, then we'll have a problem. <laughs> Whether it's related, you know, to holding bitcoins, you know, or you know, basically controlling private information that you know we selectively choose to release to other people and, and the internet and the wider world, um, we have to figure this out. This is this is a this is a civilizational requirement, you know, for continuing on basically as a species uh, and not slipping into uh, into a darker type of scenario. I completely agree. And again, I'm more optimistic than, than most, and I think I think we will rise to the uh, occasion and the need to figure this stuff out. We're the most adaptive uh, animal to ever live on this planet. I don't see why we wouldn't adapt to this as well. Yeah, I agree. And thank, thankfully, Satoshi gave us an instrument that uh, wraps human greed and number go up and provides this incentive to learn how to uh, how to manage a private key. And hopefully that doesn't get uh, co-opted by third parties. And I, like you, am optimistic that in the long run it won't be and that people will become more self-sovereign. And uh, so, yeah, we just have to... We just have to do our little part uh, to help people learn how to do it. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing your part on the front lines, writing books, educating investors, um, building products to help people invest via IRA. That's what you're working on at Swan, correct? Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, whether it's IRA format, you know, or taxable format or both um, is uh, exactly could be could be uh, both directions. Bang, bang. We'll have to talk more about that product specifically at some point um, in the future. Do you have any parting notes for the freaks out there before we wrap up? Yeah, no. I This has been a blast, Marty. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll do the usual uh, usual shills. Uh, you know, the book is Why Buy Bitcoin? Investing Today in the Money of Tomorrow. It's uh, it's meant to be, you know, the thing that you can hand to, uh, to someone you know that uh, is maybe curious and maybe knows a little but not much. And... Uh, Obviously, it's how Bitcoin works and the you know the investment thesis and the risks, but it's also peppered with some uh, fun anecdotes from uh, from my times at uh, at Goldman and, and working in finance. Um, and it's available on Amazon and Apple and Barnes and Noble and you know Amazon's the primary channel, but you can find it a bunch of places. Uh, follow me on Twitter; it's Edstrom Andrew. It's my handle. Uh, Swan Bitcoin, check it out. SwanBitcoin.com forward slash Andy. You can get 10 bucks free Bitcoin uh, for signing up. And signing up is super easy. It takes less than five minutes. And then uh, my firm, uh, which does wealth management, uh, we both you know invest for people and we provide them financial advice and do financial planning. And that uh, website is westcapgroup.com. And I'll, I'll give the disclaimer that I should have given at the beginning, which is uh, you know none of this is investment advice. These opinions are my own, not those of uh, my employer or anyone else. And do your own research, and uh, you know all that good stuff. Do your own research. Don't trust us freaks. Verify what we're talking about. That's right. Don't trust. Do verify. But do uh, you know? Do uh, subscribe to the bent and uh, and you know learn, keep learning. I'm learning every day, man. I uh, I've learned from you. I've learned from uh, from others in the space. I'm hoping to to give back a little bit. And um, but we're all we're all learning every day. Yes, we are. Never stop learning.
That's the beauty of Bitcoin. It forces you to learn. Yeah, man. Some, a lot of, uh, someday I'll be a, I hope to be a black belt and, uh, and understand it down to the, to the protocol level and the code, something to aspire to. I'm nowhere close. I'm just a finance guy trying to wrap my head around, uh, around it. But yeah. And I mean, the protocol stuff's getting, especially with lightning thrown in now too. It's, it's hard for me to even keep, I mean, not that I'm, an expert on the protocol at any means, but I, I like to think I have a, a good grasp on it, but I'm finding it with everything that's going on, like s- still hard to catch up, which may be a good thing. It means a lot of things are going on. A lot of people are working on things. Yeah, man. Even wor- working full time in the space, which I don't, uh, but even working full time in the space, it's hard to, it's hard to catch up, which is, or stay abreast, which is a uh, cause for, uh, for hope. I mean, that's a good sign. There's so many, you know, thousands of people, way smarter than me who are working to build this thing. And, uh, that's, that's going to what, that's going to be one of the things that carries its success. I completely agree. Well, keep crushing it. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you again for coming on. Uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I think the freaks are going to love it too. Um, Thank you, Marty. I really appreciate it. And, uh, it's been a blast. All right. That's all we got today. Freaks. Peace and love.